Well, welcome to lesson eight of our series here on theology. We're continuing discussing the, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, his person, his works, and so on. And we've been looking at his role as prophet and as priest. And today we look at his role as king. Now, uh, as you might remember, the, his role as prophet and priest was um, in many ways pictured by the, the prophets and priests under uh, the Old Testament law. And God communicating through prophets and uh, priests serving as an mediatory role between man and God. But it's a bit different, I think, in some ways when it comes to kings. Um, and I wanted you to look with me at 1 Samuel 8, beginning of verse 4, to get a little bit of background. 1 Samuel... Eight. Now, the context here is um, after the period of the judges, uh, the people of Israel, of course, uh, Samuel was the last of those judges, and here in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, he's um, getting on in years. And it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. That's not a good thing. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad. Yeah, in, in many ways it's bad. We'll continue reading here. Um, but the thing was evil in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They were to have been led by King Yahweh. Right? Verse 8. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So now, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly testify to them and tell them of the custom of the king who will reign over them. Verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. And he said to them, this will be the custom of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. And they will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make, his, make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and gives them to his servants. 
And he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male slaves and your female slaves and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and it said, no, but there shall be a king over us and so on. So uh, God's um, intent and, and uh, plan for them, his provision for them, was that he would be reigning over them uh, personally. They would be submitted as the Lord's people. You know, he brought them out of Egypt, um, led them in the wilderness in spite of their, their hardness of heart. Um, and of course, their rationale for having a king was, we want to be like all these other nations, right? And he can go out before us in war and lead us. And, and this, the judges that had been reigning, even up through Samuel, were not kings. They were not rulers in that sense. They were helping to judge disputes. Um, uh, and they had a variety of different roles. But... Uh, the point during that time was that God was to have been uh, king over them, and they were rejecting him. And now they were very formally rejecting him. But it is interesting, if you turn back to Genesis 35, Genesis 35, start um, verse 9. Context here is Jacob, of course, he's been up, all night he's been um, uh, I'm sorry no this is yeah this is later anyway verse 9 God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paran Aram and he blessed him and God said to him your name is Jacob no longer shall you be called Jacob but Israel shall be your name thus he called his name Israel God also said to him I am God Almighty be fruitful and multiply. A nation, an assembly of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from your loins. In the land I, which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you, and so on. Um, that's actually repeating a promise that God gave to Abraham, that kings would come from him, but now specifically even from Jacob. Uh, kings of Israel. God knew this was going to happen. Uh, nothing takes God by surprise. Uh, the, the best model we have for kings in the nation of Israel would, of course, be uh, David. Why is he a good model of a king in Israel? Yeah, he, well, he's referred to as a man after God's own heart, but in terms of his leadership as king, what was his modus operandi? Ask the Lord first, right? Should I go? Should I do this? Whatever. And um, that was the right model, that there would be a very explicit dependence on Yahweh in leading the people. 
Anyway, um, some of the kings of Judah were, were basically following that model. They're following uh, an obedience to the Lord kind of model. Not all of the kings of Judah, uh, but basically none of the kings of Israel, the northern tribes, did. Um, so anyway, uh, Jesus, of course, when, when uh, his birth was foretold to uh, Mary, particularly, uh, Gabriel told her that uh, she would bear a son and he would be king. He would, he would sit on David's throne and uh, he would be savior. And so this is, this is all part of God's plan. Okay, so that kind of brings us to the first section here, Jesus' role as king of kings, where it says, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the king through whom God will judge all mankind, including believers at the judgment seat of Christ, living inhabitants, inhabitants of the earth at his glorious return, and unbelieving dead at the great white throne. Jesus Christ is the final judge of all who fail to place their trust in him as Lord and Savior. Um, so this section highlights particularly those three um, events or, or aspects of his kingly duty. Uh, and the passages here from the scriptures are not actually in chronological order. They're in um, biblical order, the way they appear in the various books of the Bible. But let's look at them in chronological order here and go down to the bold verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10, where it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So... That's, that's a unique judgment of who? Believers. Believers. Yeah, you don't see it necessarily from that verse alone, uh, but in the context and in the rest of what we're going to be sharing, uh, it's clear that this is referring to a judgment of believers. And, in fact, that word judgment seat is the word bima, and that's, that's often associated, that word bima, often associated with um, a, a judge, let's say at a, like an athletic competition like the Olympics. What is that person's role in judging the competition? Giving out the rewards. Giving out the rewards. Uh, to who? The participants. Well, 
Which participants? The ones that won. Okay, yeah. So there are lots of participants, and rewards are given to a few based on their their um, their work or their their performance, right? And that's kind of the picture here, where uh, God will uh, give rewards to his own people based on their faithfulness. Um, and that seems a little, little weird. You know, salvation is not by works, but God is interested in our works. Meaning what? Our faithfulness, our obedience, our willingness to be yielded to him to work through us. So in essence, it's not really us, it's him working through us anyway. But we have a responsibility to yield to submit to his, his uh, working through us. And uh, God rewards that. And of course, even these crowns and, and whatever um, will be laid at his feet anyway. So it's all about God, not about us. Uh, but this is a judgment in that sense. Um, you might remember in 1 Corinthians 3... Maybe I can actually read it for you here. Verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on that, that foundation. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of our faith, right? Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will indicate it, because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality <clears throat> of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward at the Bema seat. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So this is not a, a judgment of salvation. It's about a judgment of reward for faithfulness to Christ. Now, in the context here, it's speaking mostly here of, of leaders, teachers, and, and so on. But it, the basic principle is here that God is going to be judging each believer according to their faithfulness to him and rewarding those who uh, have submitted to him in, in obedience. So that's, chronologically, that's the first of these judgments. So then, let's go up to the third one down, Matthew 25, 31 to 34. Could someone read that for me? But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Yeah, this is the sep separating of the sheep from the goats, and that happens when? It happens right after 
the um, second coming of Christ, where he returns bodily to earth to rule. And he separates the, when it says the nations here, it's referring to um, everybody, to the people. And he's classifying them in two categories, sheep and goats, right? The believers, the unbelievers. And so he separates them, and uh, the sheep uh, uh, continue with him for a thousand years in his reign here on earth, on this earth. Uh, the goats are banished at that point. So he's judging, he's, he's uh, dividing, and, and, uh, and, and so on. That seems to be related to um, what uh, Paul was referring to in Acts 17, 31, which is a couple of verses down. Can someone read that? Yeah, Diane? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Yeah. Uh, Paul's preaching here to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. And and just a very short presentation, just telling them how it is in terms of God uh, being our creator, um, uh, worthy of our worship. He's he's, uh, sent Christ to... to, uh, Judge the world, and he's proven that this is his approved king by raising him from the dead. And that, of course, kind of divided the crowd right there. (laughs) Some believed, some said, Well, um, I'd like to hear more about this, and others just heckled. But, okay. Go down, down to right after the bold verse, uh, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. You're probably very familiar with this passage. Someone want to read that? Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, so every <coughs> knee will bow. Uh, those who are in heaven, on earth, under the earth, that is, no exceptions. Does it mean that everybody's going to be a believer? No. But one day they will realize that they are subject to his rule in spite of their disbelief and uh, recognize that he is Lord. So we don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord, Lord, right? We come to a point where we understand and agree and submit to his lordship, but he's already Lord, not just of us, but of everybody else. And one day they'll all understand that. While we're here, flip over to page 58 in the application section. 
the last application there. What changes do you need to make in your life, given what it means that Jesus is Lord of all? And um, I offer this little acronym, LORD, to illustrate what it means that Jesus is Lord. We kind of use the word somewhat flippantly. Um, Lord knows, you know. Um, But hopefully this will help to drive home the significance of his lordship. The L you can think of as representing the fact that he is our leader. And therefore we what? What's our response? We follow him. He's our leader. We follow him. He's our, in that sense, he's our shepherd. We follow him, right? Uh, Jesus says, I, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. They follow me. They come to me. Right? The O represents his role as owner. Now, this is one that we often don't focus on, but... Um, He has purchased us with his blood. We are bought with a price. We are his, not our own. But even before the death of Christ, as our creator, he owns us. I mean, we're his. We're not independent. We are dependent. We are subject to, accountable to. He's our master. That's what an owner means, right? He's our master. And that's true whether we're saved or not. Now, some don't understand that, and they don't submit to his, his lordship as owner. But everything we are, everything we have, it's all his anyway. And so what's our role, or what's our response to the fact that he's our owner? Yeah, you can read, right? We have to serve him. He's our master. We're the slaves. Now, the word slave, in our experience, has, has a, um, a very negative connotation, and it, it's had a lot of negative application. But when we understand the, who our master is and what our master does, We should be grateful that we're his slaves. Everything he does is good and right. Um, In complete contrast to, you know, a human master. We talked about this a little bit when we discussed the sovereignty of God. You know, if if we could imagine a human being being completely sovereign, um, having the, the freedom and ability to do whatever he wanted... Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? That would be a bad thing because of what? Sin. Anybody who has that level of sovereignty and is also sinful is going to be a terror. right? Even if they may seem, maybe at the outset or even all the way through, as being right, they're not because they're sinful. But God isn't. Everything he does is good. Everything he does is right. All his judgments are true, and we're in a good position to be his slaves because it's not all about him, 
he's gracious to care for our needs. He's a tender shepherd and leader, but as our owner, as our master, he takes care of us. And he knows what's best for us. He knows what's coming. And we're in a good position to obey him, to serve him. Um, and that obeying actually gets, gets us to the next letter here, R. As Lord, he is also our ruler. Uh, he's king. What he says goes. Um, and because he's our ruler, our response should be what? To obey him. It's all about <coughs> obedience and not disobedience, not rebellion, but we serve him. We don't serve him ungratefully. We serve him out of obedience, yes, but out of love for what he's done for us and what he continues to do for us. Um, our obedience is not a drudgery, it's a joy. As he designed it to be. It was true for Adam and Eve, but they blew it, right? Um, so as our ruler, he is our king. But the D, he's not only those things, but he's also our deity, our God. So when we submit to him, we're not submitting to um, some human authority. We're submitting to the God who created us. And uh, that carries in and of itself a lot of significance. That he is God, and as a response, we need to what? Worship him. Um, you know, people will refer to human kings as your highness, your majesty. Uh, sometimes uh, denominations will refer to religious rulers as your grace or your worship. <laughs> Oh, even reverend, yeah. But um, God is really the only one worthy of worship. Um, not only is he worthy of worship, he demands our worship, and rightfully so. I mean, it would be a pretty bad thing for me to demand worship because I'm not worthy of worship, right? But God is. And it's it's right, it's... it's um, good that we worship him. Um, it's good, f well, it's even good for us. So, I hope that helps you to remember what it means that Jesus is Lord. He's our leader, he's our owner, our ruler, and our deity. Diane. I think we've lost a lot of the significance of this because Many of the translations take the word slave and replace it with servant. And I think even though, yes, Jesus is our friend, for some people they somehow believe that to mean that he's our peer. Exactly. And I think that we've just, we've just lost the holiness and the deity of who he is. That combined with, even in older uh, generations, and you see it in scripture, the word Lord, small l, 
is used as a term of respect for someone either in authority or just uh, 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 a, a gracious greeting kind of a thing. Uh, we would say sir and sir and lord kind of being synonymous. Um, but as it applies to Christ, it's, it's far more than that, right? Uh, he is leader, owner, ruler, and deity. Yeah, the, the, the words in the New Testament that are often referred to as servant or bondservant or whatever is the Greek word doulos, which means slave. And um, that carries a, a, a lot of significance. So um, actually the Legacy Standard Bible, actually which is what I was reading from just now, uses that translation, slave. When doulos is the word, it's typically always referring to slave. Yeah. So one thing is that there is no freedom for men. So or you are a slave of Christ, or you are a slave of the devil. So you don't have an option. Yeah. So it's not that, okay, I don't want to be the slave of Christ. Okay, then you are in the other position. What do you prefer? You can't serve two masters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have one ultimate master, but we sometimes choose not to serve him, right? Yeah. I was thinking that the main problem, or at least my perspective, is that most of Christianity thinks that lordship is optional, where Savior's fine, do what you please, that'll get you to heaven, and completely forgetting, you know, Christ as Lord right. and salvation completely. Right. And that's most Christianity today. It is. And it's not just the the point of coming to Christ in salvation. It's throughout. Yeah. But it's all that the whole process of sanctification is surrender to his lordship and surrendering to the the work of the Holy Spirit in <coughs> us to, to make us more like him, for sure. Yeah. Because I think that also speaks to the wider cultural shift from pretty much everything operating on some sort of feudalism to very individualistic societies, uh, mostly in Western society, but you're seeing it everywhere now, um, especially post-American revolution. But I mean, it used to be, like 500 years ago probably, they would read Lord and they would understand that even when it says servant, it's still talking about a slave because like in a feudal society, even if you're a servant in the Lord's household, he can make you do whatever, he is the Lord, he owns you, whether literally or just operatively. And I think the fact that we've lost that cultural understanding does impact people's understanding of the terms. I think that's right. Um, but back in those days, nobody wanted to be a slave um, because they would have been slaves of human masters. And the picture there is not all that good. And most people's experience with that was not good. And so it seems natural for people to try to downplay that that um, yeah, I'm relationship. Feudal, I'm not saying feudalism was good, just that yeah. people yeah. understood what the terms meant more when that was still a thing. But think about a lot of the parables that Jesus taught. Uh, he used that slave-master analogy because they understood it, and it was a, a good picture of their uh, relationship with God. And... We would do well to 
not just gloss over that as we read those parables, but think through the implications even for us. Yeah. Okay. Let's get back to uh, the various chronological times of his judgment here. And so we've seen the judgment seat of Christ. We've seen the, the judging the nations, all the peoples, on his return to earth at the beginning of the millennial period. And then on page 55, if we look at the second one down there, Revelation 20.11, and actually, I think for our purposes, if you have your Bible with you and can open to Revelation 20, we can start in 11, but it's helpful to see the rest of what's going on there. Revelation 20:11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it. Now, first of all, when is this? Well, Revelation 20 comes right after well, it comes after Revelation 29. Um, but if you read through Revelation 20, what you see is the return of Christ, um, the uh, starts with Satan being bound, cast into the abyss for a thousand years. Uh, verse 4, then I saw thrones and he sat on them and judgment was given to them. Um, and, and so that's this, this judging, and it turns out the, the church, the believers at this point coming with Christ, will be on, on some of those thrones, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. So we're going to talk about this in greater detail when we get to end times. That's going to be several months from now. But... For our purposes here, just understand that uh, Revelation 20 introduces the millennium. Uh, Satan is, is abound for a thousand years. And then uh, in verse 7, when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. God can make God to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up to the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, Jerusalem. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. <laughs> Put short work to them. They thought they were going to overthrow Christ reigning in Jerusalem. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, the false, and the false prophet are also and they would be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's it. No more Satan. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, 
and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So who's being judged here? All of all. Notice that it says several times here, starting in verse 12, I saw the dead. Who's that referring to? The people who don't have life. Right? The dead. The, the, those who are not saved. Those who are uh, separated from God already. Um, and is their name in the book of life? No. No, they're dead. Right? And so this is a final judgment, which is they're judged according to their deeds, but there's no question about what the sentence is. Because for all of them, their deeds are what? Unbelief. Unbelief, evil, sin, right? So um, there, there's not a question of, well, some are, you know, this is not separating the sheep from the goats. These are all goats, yeah. right? Rex? Um. Maybe it's the wrong place, but to ask, do you believe there are levels of hell? Uh, yeah, I, um, <laughs> that's, I'd have to study that more. I, I don't want to give you an answer off the top of my head. Well, the only reason I ask is there's a judgment, and they're judged according to their deeds. Yeah. So why have that if there's not different places? Well, it could also mean... They're judged on the basis of their deeds. Their deeds are testifying against them. Yeah. And there's no clear cut answer to that. I was just curious what your position. Yeah. No, I I think it's it's safe enough to say that they're judged according to their deeds. Their deeds are evil. Their deeds are disobedience. Their their deeds require them to receive the judgment that they have. It's a just sentence. Um. By the way, for what it's worth, if I were to tell you that salvation is by works, you would say what? You're wrong. I'm wrong, right? Well, there is a sense in which salvation is by works. But in our case, it's not by our works. It's by the work of Christ on our behalf, right? So judging them by their works is the standard, but in our case... We're exempt from the great white throne because we're already righteous before God, not because of our works, but because of the works of Christ. The righteous life of Christ and his substitutionary death on our behalf, God sees those works and we're in. Right? So technically, all of everybody is judged by works. The only question is whose works? Trick question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, let's move to number two here on page 55. We're getting into some of these end times roles of Christ uh, because here we're looking at his roles, but we're going to talk about the chronology and the significance and all that kind of thing when we get to end times months ahead. But here it says, Jesus Christ will return to receive the church, which is his body, 
unto himself at the rapture and returning with his church in glory will establish his millennial kingdom on earth. So uh, let's begin here with a second passage, John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. So when is this going to happen? Next. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Next. Um, uh, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Okay? So, uh, you don't have all the details here, but the, the, what is in Christ's mind when he's talking about this event is not his second coming to earth, but rather the rapture. He's going to receive us to himself. And so we have a more full description of that in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is your fourth one down. But if you have your Bible and can turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, you'll, I'm going to read more of the context there, beginning in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So what is he addressing here, the problem? There are Christians, genuine Christians, who by this time had already died. And people were expecting, they were really expecting Christ to return, establish his kingdom, and are these people going to be left out of that? Or... Is that the end? Right? They had legitimate questions. People were saved, now they're... And he uses the term asleep. Of course, Jesus used that term too, right? With Lazarus and I think some others. Um, giving the connotation that what? It's temporary. You're going to rise again. Right? So... I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. We have a hope. We have a firm assurance of what the future is going to be, and Paul's going to lay it out for us a little bit here. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the ones who have died first in Christ are going to go first. In what way? Well, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, now, we're going to lay more foundation for this even later when we talk about um, anthropology uh, next quarter. But man, mankind, God created us 
with a material body and an immaterial soul, spirit, right? When we die, particularly when we die in Christ, when we're Christians and we die, what happens to our soul, our spirit? Goes directly to be with the Lord, right? And we'll, we'll get there when we study that more fully. What happens to the body? It goes to the ground. So there's a separation of the soul and the body. That's the definition of death, really. Um, what's happening here is the resurrection, not of the soul, but of the body. Okay? So he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. So those bodies will be as we understand elsewhere from Scripture, they'll be, will become like Christ in his resurrected body. Still recognizable, basically, but not as, well, he uses the word corruptible, <laughs> as our human bodies, our flesh and blood. Um, although he had flesh and blood, bones, but it's, it's, it's a different, it's an incorruptible body. Uh, that won't see decay. Then verse 17, then we who are alive and remain up to that point will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. air. Not down on earth, up in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So, those who are asleep actually are going to be first in line <laughs> in that resurrection. Don't, don't fear for them. Uh, we're all part of this body of Christ. We're all um, to be united with Christ forever. And they're going to they're be ahead of us who are alive. Uh, by the way, while we're at it, let's go back to page 58. <clears throat> the interpretation question number two. What biblical evidence is there that the rapture of the church, and that's what we just described, that rapture, that gathering up to meet Christ in the sky, in the clouds. What biblical evidence is there that the rapture of the church is imminent? That is, there's no other prophecy left to be fulfilled before it actually happens. It could happen today. Can you think of any biblical evidence that it's imminent? Yeah. Jesus describes coming as a thief breaking into a house. So you don't know when a thief, you know, is going to break into your house. It just happens when it Could happen any time. How do you know there's nothing left to be fulfilled? Because that would be a sign along the way. First this has to happen, then that has to happen. Then it could be like a thief in the night. So that's helpful. Can you think of any other? Yeah. Well, not to make it too deep, but the church of Philadelphia was promised that they would not see the tribulation. And uh, that's a promise to believers. So if we are part of those believers, 
we can't see the tribulation. The tribulation, especially the great, is the wrath of God, and, and we're not we're not going through the wrath. Yes, that is true. And you have to see how that all fits together so that there's really only one way to see that. Can you think of any other passage? We, we just read one in 1 Thessalonians 4. Can you go back to that? Let's say verse 15. We say to you that by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And he talks about the resurrection, the, the rapture, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul seems to be, he says we. It, 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 it could happen today, Paul's saying. He includes him in the we, of, he includes himself, in the, the we who are remaining after those dead in Christ are raised, we're next, immediately, right? And he's writing it as if it, it would apply to him. It's imminent. It could be any time, right? And you take all these passages together, and you see it, it, it has to be that way. Okay. So let's go back, skipping around here. <coughs> I read, or at least I gave it a little overview of the last verse in that section number two, taken from Revelation 20. But you see, the, that's the second coming. The, the rapture is not the second coming. Because in the rapture, he doesn't even touch foot on earth. We meet him up in the, up in the clouds, right? That's... That's um, not the second coming, but it is setting the wheels in motion for the last days. Um, and at that point, um, presumably, that ushers in the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period. And at the end of that seven-year period is when the second coming actually happens, when he returns uh, Revelation 19 and 20, he returns uh, to earth to take up um, the throne in Jerusalem of David. Yeah. In 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Paul says, there's no need for me to write about the day of the Lord to, for you at all. You just follow this up with the rapture. Right. Yeah, it should be evident. Yeah, I don't need to tell you. You don't need to know that. Right. Okay, so um, this, this section two that we're in speaks of establishing the millennial kingdom on earth, and that's covered in what we read from Revelation 20, which is the last set of verses in that section. Okay, let's get then to uh, item three on page 56. The exact day and hour of Christ's coming to receive the church no one knows, except God the Father. Believers are to be prepared at all times for the any moment return of Christ. And so there are quite a few passages uh, here that 
highlight the need that was brought up earlier that we need to be ready, right? It, it can happen at any time. So look, for example, at, at the second one down, Luke 12. Could someone read that, the verse 37 to 40? Blessed are those slaves from whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. And be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. <coughs> yeah, and so that's a fairly common theme in Jesus' teachings and even in uh, some of the epistles that uh, there needs to be a readiness. Um, does that mean we have our bags packed and, and uh, we're just twiddling our thumbs ready to go? What kind of readiness is this talking about? I mean, even in the, the parable that he gave here, what kind of readiness? We're to occupy till he comes. Yeah. We're to be faithful slaves um, about our father's business so that when he comes, he will find us in fruitful labor, like any master should expect, right? Um, we're investing those minas. We're not burying them under the ground. It's his investment that he's put us in charge of, and we're to be good stewards of that to multiply. You know what? The way I put it is, um, the role of a slave is to advance the interests of his master, not his own interests. So he gives us resources, he gives us life, he gives us bodies, he gives us resources. We're to use those for his interests, to advance God's interests. Now, one of God's interests is that we be cared for. And it's legitimate for us to use an appropriate amount of our um, resources to care for our personal needs. God, but God ultimately is the one who's caring for us. Um, and, and yet we're also to be thinking eternally. How, are, how am I investing what God has entrusted to me as his slave? Am I using it for, to advance his interests? Or is it all consumed by me to advance my interests? Or at least what I think my interests are. And that's, that's something that these slaves need to be cognizant of and thinking through very carefully so that we are ready when he comes. He'll find us doing the master's work. Uh, and of course, right after his resurrection, at the end of his resurrection appearances in Acts 1, that next passage, of course, he, the disciples, very much like us, were not getting the big picture. 
still thinking that he was about to establish his kingdom physically on the earth. Um, and so when they had come together, it says in Acts 1, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is, is it the, this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Um, in other words, you don't know when, when I'm returning, when it's all going to be culminating. And so, in the very next verse, he tells them what? Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, where you're at, and in Judea, in the province that Judah, uh, Jerusalem was in, Samaria, the next one up, and then the remotest part of the earth, Maryland. Right? That's what he had in mind when he said that. <laughs> um, in other words, everywhere. Right? And so in the meantime, we're to be busy about his business. Let's skip down to Second Peter 3, the next to the last one, or the last full one on this page. Know this first of all, Peter writes, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And then Peter um, continues by showing how misled they are in their thinking, that even historically, what, what they're thinking is what's been called uniformitarianism, where they're thinking things will always go the way they have been, always things always have been going the way they are, um, neglecting, Peter says, that God has intervened. And he gives the example of a very big intervention at the time of the flood, right? God does intervene. Don't, things don't just happen the way they're always happening. God intervenes in his sovereign plan of, of his creation. And he says, in the very same way, in Second Peter 3, uh, God, there, there is yet to be an intervention by God. Things will not always continue the way they currently are, because it's even going to get to the point where he's going to um, create a new heaven and a new earth. And the existing one's just going to melt away. And that is intervention by God um, supreme. <laughs> uh, talk about things not continuing the way they are. It's all under God's control. And, but the point is that in the meantime, no one knows when that's going to happen. Um, Okay, let's look at page 57, the, the, uh, the memory verse. Can someone read that, First John 2? And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. What would cause us to shrink away in shame at his coming? 
not prepared, not ready, unfaithful, unfaithful disobedient. Right? So abide in him. Stay in him. Don't wander off to your own proclivities and your own interests, but abide in him. Okay, and then the last one, Revelation 22:20. 20. He who testifies to these things, that is, um, Jesus himself, says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I think we can all Amen. give that refrain, right? <laughs> Come quickly. Um, when he says, I'm coming quickly, he means not just in the twinkling of an eye, but at any moment. It'll be unexpected, unannounced. Um, although, um, with the rapture, has anybody seen movies like um, um, Thief in the Night? Yeah. And there's probably some others as well, but uh, you can just imagine with with Christians around the world disappearing like that, the world's going to take notice, and every single believer in Christ just disappears. And there are going to be some, oh, left behind. That's the other one. That's the other one, left behind. Um, There are going to be people left behind who are trying to make sense out of this. There are going to be people left behind who are trying to take advantage of this. Uh, And you can see how a lot of the prophecy of of Scripture is going to unfold during that very tumultuous time. But the good news is some of those people who are trying to make sense of it are still going to have the Bible. They're going to still remember things that have been taught from the Bible and realize, ooh, I see what just happened, and I was left behind. There are going to be a lot who come to faith in Christ during that tribulation period, and we see some evidence of that in the, in, uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, people who are beheaded for the name of Christ during that tribulation period. Um, and in Revelation 20, it says those who um, uh, were uh, who came to Christ during the tribulation period will um, they weren't part of the rapture. They missed the rapture, but they're going to rise in time for the millennium, and that's the first resurrection. It's actually the first resurrection, part B. The resurrection first resurrection part A was the the, the rapture. Part B of that, the, the complementary people are those who came to Christ during the tribulation period. And so at the time of the, the, the uh, millennium, all the saved in Christ will be with him, reigning with him. Uh, in glorified bodies on earth. Won't that be fun? Yeah. The sheep are not glorified. That inner, the yeah, that's right. The, pe- the people who went through the tribulation and got saved and for whatever reason were not killed right. during the tribulation, those are the sheep who he's separating the sheep from the goats. They're on earth. 
So there are going to be people who are not in their glorified bodies and people who are in glorified bodies for a thousand years. And they have children, and according to Isaiah 65, they're, you know, some of the second generation aren't saved, and there's a child put to death at 100. So there's a perfect environment, but man's still sinful, and man still rebels. And, and we can't blame Satan. No, he's bound. He's bound for the whole thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, what does Satan do? He's released, and he's able to deceive the nations to rebel against Christ. Why? Because a lot of those, those descendants of the sheep are lost, ready for that deception. They fall for it, and... It's the sands of the sea. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Anyway... Uh, Just want to encourage you, the first application question, what should we do in anticipation of standing before the judgment seat of Christ? We talked about that a bit, but in terms of takeaway today, that's where the rubber meets the road for us. Are we faithful? Are we obedient? Uh, are we about our master's business? Let's close in prayer.